It's time for Black and White, a show that wants to bring all of us together, talking again about the issues that concern us. It's time to hear from people who only want to deal with facts. It's time for you to re-engage in your right of American free speech. It's time for Black and White. Welcome to Black and Whites, and it's good to be back in the chair after surviving uh, Hurricane Ian. Uh, joining us today is Ian Eland, is that correct? Yeah, Ivan Eland. Ivan Eland, who was a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and director of the Institute Center for Peace and Liberty. He's also the author of a new book, War and the Rogue Presidency, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Did you write that as uh, uh, an inspiration and, or is it just happened to work out what you, you did it when it came out, uh, what we went through this past week? Uh, well, no, I, I originally just uh, wrote it uh, as sort of a historical, um, you know, volume about how we got to where we are, because our government doesn't look anything like the founding generation wanted it to operate. And most people don't really realize that. And also, most of it has happened because of the wars of the 20th century. Uh, and most people don't know that either, that war has a tremendously distorting um, effect on the, the country that's involved in it back home. Uh, both the causes of the wars, we don't hear a lot about the domestic causes of our wars, and we don't hear, hear too much about the domestic effects of those wars. So, um, and, and the redistribution of power and the uh, civil liberties that are eroded in this case, I focus on the uh, creation of the imperial presidency over time and the abdication of Congress, which was the founders thought would be the most dominant branch of the three branches of the federal government. Uh, and a lot of that power has been shifted to the executive, which is not really good for the Republic to have such a lopsided uh, system of checks and balances. You know, it's interesting what you're talking about because uh, there's a couple of issues uh, that are, are prominent right now uh, that the courts have said that, that what the president has done is beyond the reach of the presidency. And he, while they didn't use the word imperial presidency, implication was that they had, they had taken power away from the Congress. Uh, and only the Congress had the ability, for example, to forgive student loans because they uh, put the legislation in place, uh, and yet we we don't hear a lot of the leadership in the House, uh, the Democrats or the Senate, for that matter, uh, complaining about the fact that the president's trying to do this. In fact, the the House is, uh, including the Speaker, uh, were encouraging him to do this. So, um, is is it really a matter of that the president? took it or that the Congress chose not to defend it? Well, I think it's both of those. It's the congressional abdication of a lot of this power. And, um, the, but the president is taking it uh, and they're letting him have it. And I think the student loan um, example is a very good one uh, because, um, but you'll see the president uh, say other things like back in the Obama administration, he said, well, you know, uh, when the, the election didn't go his way, 
he goes, well, you know, I've still, I still have a pen, meaning I can still do executive orders. Well, when you ever hear, you, you hear something like that, or if the president says, well, I had to take action because the, the Congress didn't, uh, your ears should perk up because that's unconstitutional. The, he's not supposed to legislate with the stroke of a pen with an executive order. The Congress, the way the founders set up the system is the Congress makes the laws and the, uh, the executive is supposed to just execute the laws domestically and execute any war that the Congress declares as a, in the narrow focused commander in chief role as commander on the battlefield. So both home and abroad, the uh, executive branch is just supposed to execute and the independent executive branch was created in the constitution because there was a debate about this. They, they want, so a lot of people wanted the Congress to elect the president like, they, like the parliament does and elects the prime minister essentially in Britain. Uh, but they didn't want to do that because they thought the Congress might be too powerful. Well, and they uh, established this independent executive to, with a veto power, a limited veto power over legislation, to sort of be a check on the, the power of the Congress. But what's happened is now we have a Congress that's trying to act like a check on the president and not you know, these, first of all, they've reversed it, but then the Congress really doesn't do a very good job of uh, constraining the president, especially in the warfare area. It's amazing to me, I, I've done a lot of uh, research on what's going on in Ukraine and how things changed so dramatically where the Ukrainian government actually has pretty well destroyed the Russian army that was sent in there to, to take over portions of the country. But what's interesting to me is that before February of this year, the United States, China, and Russia were the third largest military powers in the world. And now it's the United States, China, and Ukraine. We have, the United States has given them over $50 billion in money and material. And the European nations have given them another 35 billion. So we have almost $90 billion has been given to the Ukrainian government with no accountability whatsoever to anybody. And recently, uh, the president of Ukraine says that he thinks the world should give him endless amount of money forever. When President Biden decides to give him more money, he's hiring the Ukrainian army as a surrogate to, to try to deal with Russia. There's no declaration of war in Congress, and yet they just continue to spend more and more money with nobody being held accountable. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's better than our forces doing it itself, I guess, but that's about all you can say. Um, we did the same thing in Afghanistan during the 80s with the Soviet Union. We wanted to give them another Vietnam, and we successfully did that. But of course, uh, these, there's always unintended consequences. Uh, we did the same thing in the Iraq-Iran war. We were afraid of the Iranians more than the Iraqis. So we started building up um, the Iraqis with, uh, with even chemical and biological precursors. And then later on, we said, well, they're getting chemical and biological weapons. Yes, well, 
the father helped the the, the uh, get them the the Iraqis get them and then the son was complaining about that they were getting these weapons even though they had terminated their program but so we do these things and they all have uh unintended consequences what I'm saying of course the unintended consequences of the Carter Reagan years in Afghanistan was 9-11 uh, we decided to side with these radical Islamic uh, Islamist fighters and thought it would be a good idea because it was during the Cold War. But then, of course, you know, after the Cold War was over, this came back to bite the U.S. And so we don't know what the unintended consequences of the of sending all this armaments into Ukraine. And uh, certainly it is something that the taxpayers are, are paying for. And um, there's been public support for it. But you don't know how, the, how long that's going to last. I think that's going to be an issue, especially if it keeps costing that much. But uh, there are unintended consequences for these things, even when you're doing it indirectly, like we're, we're doing it. There have been several uh, problems with that in the past. Um, and I would argue that that's probably happening in Libya, too, when we went in there. So, um, and, and certainly Zelensky is demanding a lot. Um, he's very skilled at public relations, unlike the Russians. So he, um, you know, he's able to pull at the heartstrings. And of course, no one's defending Putin's invasion. This was a really bad idea. And I even said that on, I was, did a TV interview with Russian TV shortly before this was going to happen. I just said, uh, you know, I agree that the United States has expanded NATO up to the borders of Russia and Russia might be threatened by that, but that doesn't really excuse the invasion. I think it's gonna be a counterproductive thing. Well, of course they didn't really wanna hear that, but you know, uh, it, it, and I thought, you know, the Russians would win sooner than they did. And of course they haven't won it at all. And that part of the reason for that is US training from 2014 when the Russians uh, invaded the first time Crimea and uh, the Donbass region. It was just a partial invasion there, but that spurred Ukraine to get U.S. help. And of course, now we've got the floodgates opening. So we, we're making a, a big, uh, as you point out, there really hasn't been too much congressional input. Now they have been uh, appropriating the money and many presidents uh, take that as a sign that it's okay. And since there's no direct war, I guess that's really the only um, constitutional, in this case, uh, restriction. And I think that it seems like if the, if the uh, Republicans do take the House, that there's going to be more scrutiny on uh, this money. And you're right, there's probably a lot of waste going on, uh, as, as it was in Afghanistan for 20 years. They just threw money uh, and it was um, absorbed into corruption rather than fighting the Taliban. So uh, in Iraq, in Iraq, when we were in Iraq, the same thing happened. There was just massive waste. Um, and that's been documented by the executive branch itself in those two cases. So it's there's bound to be a lot of waste because they figure it's an emergency. So they just um, suspend all all the safeguards and spend like drunken sailors, really, even though the Navy has nothing to do with this. Right. 
Why do you, why do you think that, that both Republicans and Democrats alike in the House and the Senate have been, there's been very little criticism about our support for Ukraine? Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's also, it's very, uh, when something like this happens in Europe, people go crazy. I mean, we have a situation in Ethiopia where we've had probably a half a million people killed in a very short period of time, and it doesn't even make the newspapers hardly. So many more people killed than in Ukraine. So um, it, one of the reasons is I think that we seem to think anything in Europe is strategic, but I'll tell you something, the Russians have been invaded like at least six times, and most of the invasions have gone through the West, through, through Belarus, through Poland, and through Ukraine, right? And so Ukraine is very strategic, not only from an invasion route standpoint for the Russians, but also because of the grain and the industry. A lot of the industry in the Soviet Union was in, in Eastern Ukraine. So Ukraine has always been part, you know, strategic to Russia. Whereas if you look at it from really a nuts and bolts and, and a pragmatic thing, Ukraine is not strategic to the United States. So the question is, you know, is this really, shouldn't the Europeans be taking care of this? That's what I think. They're all rich and they don't do anything unless the United States leads them into battle. And that's the problem with keeping NATO around and expanding it after the Cold War is these countries start relying on the United States to, and they always say, well, the US must lead and you know, you better you know, hang onto your wallet because that means that the United States is gonna be paying for this. And I, that's the biggest thing I think if they're, you know, that it's, this is very important to the Europeans. So if Russia does something like this, they should be the ones footing the bill and we should be a minimum if we're providing the weapons, they should be paying us for the weapons that we're sending there because uh, the European Union uh, um, has a, a combined GDP greater than the United States. And also Russia has the, about the size of, uh, its economy is about the size of Spain. And of course that's just one country in Europe. So the, the, the economic power is in vast uh, you know, disproportion. The, the, the only thing that Russia really has is nuclear weapons in large numbers. And I think that's what makes Europe nervous. But of course, France and Britain also have nuclear weapons. So you know, the, the whole question is, is this strategic to the United States? And I would argue that Ukraine is not strategic to the United States. It may be very strategic to Russia because it's on the invasion route and for those other reasons I mentioned. And it's somewhat strategic to the Europeans because uh, they're afraid Russia is going to go farther. Now, of course, Russia is not going anywhere now because its military has been so battered by, by the Ukrainian um, you know, adventure that uh, it's probably much less of a threat to Europe than it was. And now, now you can make the argument, well, okay, let's disband NATO and let's get the Europeans um, uh, up to speed so that they can defend themselves. But now you ask, why doesn't that happen? Why is there so much bipartisan support uh, for Ukraine? And that's because we like to be the leader and we don't mind paying the bill. And we think we get some uh, amorphous influence from doing this, but it's, uh, you know, they, the European countries, Germany, UK, Italy, uh, France, they regularly 
disregard what the US says in other areas. So I'm not sure what we get by influence for doing this, but we would like to be the leader and we're accustomed to policing the world in the Cold War and it just carried on afterwards. And I just don't think, you know, we have such a, what, over $30 billion, uh, trillion dollars of national debt. I just don't think, I think we need a period of renewal and we should be more, uh, you know, conservative about where we dole out the money. And certainly I would make the Europeans pay for some of this stuff. You know, we can say we have the most sophisticated weapons and we can provide them to Ukraine, but you need to pay us back here because, you know, it's more strategic to you than it is to us. Well, Professor, we need to take a quick break here. Where can people find your book? Uh, you can get it on Amazon or directly from the Independent Institute, which is where I work and which I published it. So it's independentinstitute.org.com? Yeah. .org, independent.com. Okay. We'll be right back with the professor in just a moment. Inflation for most people is causing them to use their credit cards to try and make up for income shortfalls. How big is this problem? In the second quarter of 2022, Americans added $46 billion to their credit card balances. Some of that could be you. The Federal Reserve Consumer Credit Report showed that the rate of interest on credit cards went from 14.56 to 16.65%. Those Americans struggling with credit card debt saw their delinquency rates escalate from 1.66% to 1.81%. The Cambridge Debt Consolidation program may be able to help you reduce the interest rates by two-thirds and cut your time to pay off the debt from 30 years to as little as five years. If you're struggling and you want professional and objective help getting your credit house in order, then call 1-855-435-2066 or go to the website cambridgeyescredit.org forward slash bw hyphen podcast and get your house in order. And we're back. Uh, we're speaking to um, Ivan or Ian? Ivan. Ivan. Uh, Elland? Yeah, uh, it's Ivan Eland. Yeah. Eland, I'm sorry. Uh, he is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and director of Institute Center on Peace and Liberty. And he's the author of the book, which we've been talking about, War and the Rogue Presidency, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Let's take that last line, congressional failure. Why do you think, or do you, you believe that the Congress has failed? And the second part of the question is, why have they failed? Well, I do believe Congress has failed. And I think the American people uh, believe, uh, believe the same thing because Congress always gets very low, I mean, very low, uh, approval rating. There's a lot of disdain. If you just go out and talk to people on the street in any state, they'll be going, oh, yeah, those Cong you know, Congress, you know, but they're always doing something wrong. But of course, everybody always votes for their own congressman and senator. But the reason of the, the failure is because Congress really doesn't do its job anymore in legislation. Uh, a lot of legislation is now done by executive order by the president. And um, the, the Congress has uh, for, really forfeited or abdicated a lot of its powers to the executive. And uh, the Congress was, as I mentioned in the last segment, the Congress was supposed to be the um, premier of the three premier branch of the three branches. But of course, it, it, the wars of the 20th century 
uh, war tends to concentrate power in the executive uh, because the executive has an internal hierarchical structure, whereas you have 535 members of Congress uh, you know, with 535 views about what to do. But the, the, the three basic areas where Congress has failed is the war power. We no longer declare war after Harry Truman uh, decided to flout that requirement uh, in the Korean War, set a precedent, never had another declared war, even though we've had a lot of wars since uh, the Korean War. Uh, second one is uh, treaty making power. We hardly ever make treaties anymore. And treaties must be ratified by the Congress under the Constitution, but with a two thirds majority. That's a very steep uh, uh, hill to climb. So presidents have gone around it. They either use executive agreements that require only 50% in each house, which is actually easier to get than two thirds in the Senate, uh, or they negotiate with the foreign government and they never send the executive agreement to the Congress. And there's some executive agreements, which is really alarming, that are secret, that the people don't know about. Uh, so that's the treaty power is the second one. We already mentioned the war power. The third one is the budget. In the budgetary area, um, it looks like you have congressional participation and traditionally Congress and all parliaments around the world uh, providing the money was a check on you know, the king or in this case, our president um, or any prime minister around that the, the legislature provides the money for these things, whether it's war or domestic programs or whatever. Well, we now have a unified executive budget that goes up through the president. And once the executive budget, which is massive, not only in money, but in pages, uh, it, they send it to the Congress and the Congress doesn't have the staff that the executive branch has. The executive branch has nine. But they send it there. So there's not enough staff or um, time to go over the whole budget. So they just each year they putter around the edges and they don't always put, putter on the most important things, they putter on the most politically visible things, which uh, is- Professor, uh, excuse me for interrupting you. Um, we're, we're seeing appropriations bills that are coming out of the Ways and Means Committee uh, that are 2,700, 3,000 pages long, and they give the congressman 24, 48 hours to read the whole document and have no time for dialogue. Why was it, why is it, or what is it about the Congress that it has continued to abdicate? What are they afraid of doing? Well, I think that we've had a divergence between the interests of the, inner, of the institution itself and the actual members in the, in, the, in the Senate and the House. We now have celebrity senators and celebrity congressmen who are more interested in posing before the cameras and talking about this or that or attacking some other member of Congress than actually the old fashioned people were legislators. They would roll up their sleeves and uh, make new laws, which is what they're supposed to be doing. It wasn't much of it. They worked in the, toiled in the trenches, if you will, without much recognition. 
uh, but now you know TV, uh, social media, everybody's tweeting and um, Facebook and um, uh, television, radio. Uh, we have celebrity uh, congressmen, and so they would rather do that than because legislation. If you legislate and you vote on stuff, you have to take a position. And you say, well, that is not what they're supposed to be doing. Yes, but that might not be conducive to their um, reelection. So they want to get reelected as the first uh, issue. And particularly in the war issue, which I deal with in my book, during the, Iraq, the first Iraq war, people were, you know, they panicked because they, they don't know which way to vote. Is this going to be a popular war or is this going to be an unpopular war? And if I vote for it, um, I'm good. If, I, if I don't vote for it, I'm going to be unpatriotic. And if I do vote for it and it goes south, then people are going to come back at me, uh, you know, and say, like Obama did to Hillary Clinton, the Democratic primaries, that, well, you voted for the Iraq war and you shouldn't have voted for it because now it's a mess, right? So the congressmen are very nervous about taking any sort of vote. I worked in Congress for 15 years. And I always thought there are a lot they're a lot um, more nervous than they should be because if you have just explained why you voted that way, Ron Paul said to me once, because he voted against the Iraq war and on the rest of the Republicans all voted for the Iraq war. I go, well, how did you, you know, sell that to your conservative constituents in Texas? And he said, well, you know, I just, uh, I just explained to them why I didn't want to do it. You know why I thought it was a bad idea constitutionally, et cetera, and you know, and I really appreciated that answer at the time because almost no Congress people think that way. They just say, "Well, you know," I, so so. In other words, the founders, Madison thought, "Well, you know, the the various branches will. It's in their institutional interests to push back against the other branch." But in the Congress, a lot of times. They'll want, they want to delegate um, power to the executive because they want to take credit for stuff, but they don't want to take any blame. Let's take a domestic example. You know, they passed the Clean Air Act or Clean Water Act, and they get they said, well, you know, I'm pro-environment. You know, look, I, pa I, I voted for this thing. But then, of course, they, they make it very general, and they turn it over to the EPA and other agencies to implement and they, people like environmental stuff until it affects their economy in their particular area. Like, well, we're going to have to lay some people off because we, we have to put all the, spend all this money for our pollution control devices. Well, that's an example where people, they, they complain then, or they complain, businessmen complain that the uh, regulations are, are stifling their business. Well, the Congress would say, well, you know, I'll take it up with the EPA, but they make all those rules. You know, I don't make any of those rules. So they, they, they make vague legislation and they really basically let the executive agencies legislate now because they don't really want to take the blame for regulations that they, that, that the law, the vague law that they made allows EPA to do. So, and the same with, with war, they don't want to have, they would just rather have the executive start the war unilaterally and not have to vote on it at all because they, you know, voting is, uh, you can vote the wrong way and get voted out of office the next time because you voted the wrong way on a war or a domestic uh, issue.
So the, no, the bottom line is that we now have a divergence between the institutional interests, which should be to push back and say, no, you're not going to take my power. I'm taking it back because it's in the Constitution versus the in interests of the members, which they want to you know, escape responsibility. And their first goal is to, be <coughs> to raise money for the reelection because it costs a lot of money in America to, to run for office. And they want, they're concentrating on getting reelected. But uh, we've got about three minutes here, uh, Professor. Uh, what, what, what I'm, as lis I'm listening to you, I'm wondering, given the ineptitude of the Congress, why do we need them anymore? Well, if the Congress uh, uh, works correctly, they're supposed to be representing the people. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you do want your representatives having, you don't want to be governed by large executive bureaucracies because if you ever try to deal with one, like if, what if your social security check is late or what if you're, you know, you're having some other problem with the government, uh, it's almost, it's a bureaucratic morass. They're massive. But, but professor, aren't we already in that state? Are we all, Beg are your we pardon? already, I said, aren't we already in that state? Well, yes, yes. But I think if the, if the Congress takes power back, you're at least going to have more say and you're going to have more representation in the government. That's the idea. Um, you, need, you do need probably some uh, agencies to implement whatever Congress creates, but the, the agencies should not be legislating. The people's branch should be legislating. Otherwise, we just have... Um, dictatorship with executive fiat uh, making the decisions. Uh, and so Congress, I think, really needs to, at least you have some uh, popular uh, input to the government. And, and if the people want to say these bureaucracies is too big, they can tell Congress, you know, you really should uh, cut these things. The problem is congressmen like to dole out money to their states and, and uh, districts. And so it kind of goes the opposite way. But if you really had a situation where the economy is really being dragged to the point of no return uh, by, by this uh, large government, the, the Congress, if it was empowered, it could cut the budget and could say, listen, we're just not gonna spend that as much anymore. And you're gonna have to make do with less. So what, what, in our last minute or so, what are the two or three things that right now, with a new Congress coming in in January, if they want to change the agenda, what are the two or three things that you think they need to start with to try and get their, their share of the responsibility and the power back? Well, the first thing, the most important thing, I think, is the war power. The second most important thing is the budgetary power, because if Congress can, if Congress, uh, they, they, these, the executive branches abuse these two resolutions, one for the Afghan war and one for the Iraq war, to go on these, we're, we're involved in many wars overseas. People don't even real, realize it. So that, they got to reclaim that. And they said, listen, we're going to repeal those resolutions. And we're going to, if you want to go in, in these places, you got to ask us each individual one, and we'll approve it. Okay, the budget, what we need to do 
is we need to start having budgetary discipline ourselves in the Congress. And therefore, we're going to start really examining the federal budget. And we're going to start cutting because we've got too much regulation and we have too high spending levels. And we just, you know, we're going to start being a restraint on these executive agencies instead of an enabler uh, for increased government spending. Well, thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure talking to you. We've been speaking to Ivan Elin. He is a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and director of the Institute Center on Peace and Liberty. He's also the author of the new book, War and Rogue President, Restoring the Republic After Congressional Failure. Thank you for joining us so much today. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. And we'll be right back. <laughs>